Hi, this is Todd Norwood. I'm here with my co-host Jason Hammond for the fifth episode of the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm glad you're with us today. Uh, so for our first question for today is, uh, any good rides this weekend? Uh, yeah, I competed in the Santa Cruz Classic, which the the race promoter said it was 51 years of racing down in Santa Cruz. It's uh, a crit course that has um, a steep pitch into a false flat, into a sort of corkscrew downhill, into a flat back stretch, into the steep hill again. And it's, what, a minute and a half, two minutes, so you do... I think we did 34 laps in 65 minutes, and uh, I got mid-pack. Woo! Um, the I mean, that's not great, obviously. You want to get a podium or something, but I've always struggled personally with these more... I mean, this crit is, you know, blow yourself for 60 seconds, try and recover in 60 seconds, do 60 seconds again. And I don't have the engine necessarily. Like, that's not my riding style, but... I do have maybe the technical skill or the brains to, to maximize my recovery and minimize my work. Mm -hmm. That's really where I would have to squeak out value. So it was nice to finish in the field because I felt like I, I got a lot of value out of not doing too much work. And, um, you know, I would, one of the big things is, um, chopping people in the corner, basically, um, undercutting them and forcing them wide, uh, having the technical skill to not lose. One of the ways that really hurt people was on the corkscrew, if you if you weren't stuck on the rider in front of you, you had to ride in the wind on the downhill to get back into the wheel. But that's the time when you should be re recovering. So you're now working during the recovering part. And if you choose not to do that, then you just ride the whole back stretch, like two bike lengths off the guy in front of you. So if you hit that U-turn well, you don't have to worry about that at all. You're just stuck on someone's wheel and you get a free ride all the way back to the hill. So um, I guess the big things that I personally took away was remembering that um, if you want to conserve energy, work the least, the steeper it is. Mm -hmm. And second, don't break too much into the corners. And if the people in front of you break, go around them um, and make sure you're sheltered in the fastest part of the course. These are like classic do less work tips. Uh, like fuel economy for your car, right? Yeah. <laughs> Braking never helps your fuel economy. Same thing with this. Yeah, and uh, find that 18 wheeler to sit behind. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so, what about you, Todd? Uh, I had a fantastic ride with the high school kids on my team this weekend. It's just nice to see them progress as the season goes on. You know, it's just because they're young, right? They, they get stronger. You see their technical skill improve and. That, I mean, that's why I go out and coach them. I mean, I, I love riding a bike, but I think being able to watch them sort of develop throughout the season uh, is just a really amazing experience. I mean, obviously, the smiles that go with it. So it's pretty cool. cool to go out and see them just like, you know, master a new section of trails they haven't been able to ride before. Or just, just be stronger at the end of a ride. So. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, and um, we have two topics today. Uh, we didn't actually discuss who was going to go first. You went first last time, right? Yeah. I guess you I, gotta, go first? I gotta go okay. first. So I'm gonna talk about heart variability. Uh, Ooh. Yeah, we're we're not gonna go too in depth into the technical stuff because it it can get very very technical. Um, and I think it's just easy to get bogged down in that. Uh, try to stay more on the practical application. How does this affect your training? What might you take this information to mean? How might you act on it on a day to day basis within your training? Um, as opposed to like going down the rabbit hole of, well, so what's this number actually mean and how is this number derived? I think 
we can talk about that a little bit, but I think it's more useful for most folks to say, okay, well, what do I, what do I do with that information uh, before we dive into like, also, what is it all about? Okay. Um, so, you know, on, on the highest level, you know, if you think about your resting pulse, that's right. Let's say your, your pulse is 60 beats per minute. The default assumption is that it would be one beat every second, right? Like this mechanical metronome. Bum, bum, it's not bum. like that. <laughs> no, it is, it, is, it is not like that. Believe it or not, and there's actually so that's where heart rate variability comes in, right? There's actually variation between how each beat, right? It's not the same, you know, measured, you know, BPM divided by time. Mm, so it's not a sine wave. It is. It is not. Okay. Yeah. There are there are ways, right? If you look at an EKG, you can see the different parts and mm. different electrical discharges and everything. Okay. But between so what we look at with heart rate variability is all as far as I'm going on the EKG today is the R wave, okay, which is like one of the spikes that you see on the EKG, mm-hmm. and then you measure the distance between those two, and the distance in this case is time, right? It's the time in milliseconds. Yep. All right. So if you look at successive R waves, there, there there's a difference in the time between each one. There's difference in that distance. So you would you know if you had an Excel sheet each row is that distance and mm-hmm. you would just make a big list every second you can make a list and then you get five seconds worth of data what's that or five well, minutes worth so of data so you say every every beat right so you measure okay. r interval and then how long in milliseconds uh, 1200 right and then from that r wave to the next r wave how long in milliseconds 1195 okay so on and so forth and then you have a couple minutes worth of data yeah you'd only need like five minutes worth of data to get like 300 mm-hmm. Yeah, you can get a lot. Okay. And so when you look at heart rate variability and you look at the research, the thing they look at is the root mean squared of successive differences. Yeah. This is why we're not going really deep into math, right? Is okay. So we're looking, point being, we're looking at the difference in the, you know successive waves and what's the root mean squared of the differences. Right. And so the, sequence. the root mean squared is the, it's like the, the square of the differences. And then you have to square root it, and yes. um, basically it's it's a thinking back as opposed to just a simple average. If you do the squared average, it um, takes into account outliers more yes. significantly than like a linear averaging. Is that right. correct? Yes, that sounds right to me. Okay, because uh, then you can also do um, you can do like cubic averaging, which takes into account um, outliers even more. Yeah. So we're just looking at that, and so. The, what this tells us, in theory, is it's, a, it's an insight into the workings of the autonomic nervous system. So your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system, which we often think about as like, you know, sympathetic is the fight or flight response, right? That's, okay. those, those two are linked. That's the like, you know, I'm, I'm under stress, right? Either it's the adrenaline's going, and that's, that's what's driving that response, and that's going to reduce your heart rate variability generally speaking, right? If you have sympathetic drive, you're going to have lower variability. So those those um, distances between each successive beat are going to be more uniform. So so when you're like um, heading into a race and you have like this arousal of like, I'm about to be in this crazy crit or this crazy mountain bike race, your beats get more steady. That's what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then the opposite is our parasympathetic system. And since you know, there's a cool name, fight or, fight or flight for sympathetic, we have to have a cool name for parasympathetic. So the physiologist said rest and digest, because that's what 
Rest and digest. Yeah, yeah, not okay. quite, not quite as cool <laughs> or exciting. But that's, I mean, that's it, right? You know, that's the the part of the nervous system that's sort of in charge when we're doing our recovery sort of things. Okay. And, we're, and the way the way I think about it, and the way it's been taught to me in physiology class, I'm sure like everybody's taking basic, you know, anatomy physiology. It's like, well, look, if you're in the savanna and a lion starts chasing you, this is a terrible time for you to digest what you just had for lunch. Okay. Right? You need to divert your energy to your legs and you need to run so you're not the lion's lunch. Hmm. Right? And, you know, other things on a parasympathetic are the long-term things, right? It's like our reproductive system is in the parasympathetic realm. It's really a bad time to, like, work on, you know, your reproductive system when you're being chased by a lion. This is not, right, short-term gain, long-term gain. Yep. And so parasympathetic is really about the long-term gain and preserving for the long-term versus sympathetic like, I need to solve this problem in the short-term. Okay. All right? So that's the, like, highest level thinking about what's going on here. And then, so, okay, how does it pertain to our training? Right? That's, that's right. what we want to know. What, what does it inform about our training? So we know that to have a positive response to our training, we have to put our body under a stress. Right? The stress of training, whether it's our lactic threshold intervals or our sprint intervals or our really long endurance rides or our fasted rides, all those things put a stress on our system. Right, and as we said in the last podcast, it's sort of proportional to the total work mm-hmm. as well, the, the total stimulus. Yep, absolutely. So we have to play, place that stress on our system, and we have to recover from that stress, and that's ultimately where we get better. But if you can imagine building your blocks of your training program, right, your progressive overload through your program, you can imagine after the third week, the hardest week of the block, mm-hmm. that your sympathetic activity might be a little bit higher. Right? You're under, your body is actively under a load. It's been under a load. And so that, that may show in a reduced heart rate variability. Okay. I think the other thing is that where I find heart rate variability very useful is thinking about, okay, I can set up this amazing training program, right? I can look in training peaks. I can look at my chronic training load. I can look at my acute training load. And that's all, all well and good, and it looks at how many watts I was putting out or how many kilojoules, but it doesn't take into account what happened in my life when I was on the bike. Right? It doesn't take into account, did I sleep well? Was I sick? Did I, what were the other factors that can impact my training? And I think that's what heart rate variability does a good job of, is it informs us about how these other factors that are you know, not counted, you can count in a training diary, and we've touched on that a little bit, but this is a way to quantify that nicely and say, at least the way I use it is, hmm, my, my variability is awfully low today. This may be a time to have a rest day today and move around and do my interval day and other day, right? And shift my training program around in response to that. Okay, so let me recap for myself. The When you're under high stress, as in you have either had high life stress, high training stress, you aren't able to enter the parasympathetic uh, like system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, so well, so it's kind of a I want to say it's kind of a balance, right? Like if you have kind of one or the other. You, like, so you're using both at the same time, I assume. Well, it's like one's on. Right? Okay. One, one's one's in in control, right? One's more active at the time versus the other. Okay. So uh, we should expect when we wake up that the parasympathetic system should be active because we just rested and digested. Is that right? right? Like a normal. Well, it, so. This is going to like sleep, but what wakes you up is a little bit of a sympathetic drive. 
Okay. So yeah, rather do from your sleep. But yes, like if you're in you know, in the middle of restful sleep, it's absolutely like parasympathetic is should be in charge for that. Okay. Time. So I guess I, I like jumped the gun a little bit. I, I assume that you're checking heart rate variability when you wake up. Yes. And so this is this will factor into like why it's important to check at the same time on a regular okay. basis, right? Same thing like with weighing yourself, like it's consistent. If you want to actually know how your weight changes, yeah. you probably want to do it at a consistent time, consistent. And the consistent correct time is when you wake up after you pee naked. Okay, let's not argue about this. That's the only time you should weigh yourself. I, I <laughs> Okay, good. Because I, I know other people are like, before you go to bed, which is not a good time. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, as long as you're consistent, there will be a trend. That's thing, true. The most, yeah, morning is easy. There's few, very few variables. So there. back to where we were, if you basically if you have um, not enough variability, mm-hmm. you're in your your sympathetic system is in control. Yep, striving. And that could indicate that you're overstressed. And mm-hmm. stress, this generic term stress, physical stress, mental stress, lifestyle stress, all the stress. Yep, all so I think that's the nice thing about the heart variability captures that um, like our training loads don't capture, right? Training load captures this very specific thing around what's the load I'm putting in my body from my training, whereas heart rate variability is a little bit more global and it'll capture, like, do you have a crappy week at work? Did you sleep poorly? Did, are you jet lagged because you were you know, on the East Coast or the West Coast and your body's three hours off now? Yep. Um, so it captures kind of all those things and gives you a little insight to that. And how does that match up with... Um the psychological there's like the psychology idea that we have like a finite number of stress units per day or per week and um you know like uh, this idea of like people are cranky in the evening and it has to do with uh, you know they use up all their stress units it's not just that they're hangry no um <laughs> sorry it's just i mean I, it could be i <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i mean i you know I'm certainly not a psychologist by trade, but I think that also has to do with right resiliency, and everybody has a has a different reservoir for how much they can tolerate, right? Okay. There's factors that go into that, right? Like, what's your what's your baseline, and what's your like what's mm-hmm. your tolerance, right? Like, I think most people say I'm pretty mellow, pretty chill, and it takes a lot to to get under my skin, and then so, right, so you know, there's other people that are like just like the slightest thing, right, and they're like all amped up. Yeah. And so some of that I think is like a personal um, like level that you have to deal with. I, I can I can sort of get behind that idea of like yeah you, you can only tolerate so much psychological stress. Like you you have a, a number of value that when you cross it that right, now you're angry now you okay it, yeah. And then uh, relating to cycling and heart rate variability, you maybe um, the physical stress that you put on in training mm-hmm. dips into that reservoir. Absolutely. Regardless of the size, it, it dips in, and then your work dips in, and then your kid dips in, and then um, suddenly, like, you're scraping the bottom of the bucket. Yep. Um, and then you wake up the next morning, and your heart rate variability is low. Correct. Okay. And um, the the whole idea is it's a way to get more feedback and determine if it's really a good idea to do the training that you think you're supposed to be doing today. That's the way I use it. That's the way I think about it, right? Is looking at, right? Because if I'm already, so let's say I wake up, right? I have really low heart rate variability. And I'll get into like personal anecdotes here uh, in a minute. But to me, this is a very bad time for me to put more stress or try to put more stress 
onto the system, right? Like it's already under stress. It's already telling me, right? It's under stress. And so I probably shouldn't go and induce more stress. Because, right, you know, some, some, some things bend, some things break. That seems like to me a, I'm approaching the breaking point. Yeah. Um, so here, I, I, for me, like personal practical application, I think of it as a two by two grade. Okay. For, okay. for my training and my utilization of heart rate variability. So on one axis, you have heart rate variability. And on the other axis, you have your subjective feeling. Okay. Your like RPE or something similar to that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like bundle in soreness. I mean, like, you know, like some days you wake up after a really hard ride and you're like, you're wiped and like, man. Yeah. Oh, thank, crap. Thank yeah. goodness I have a recovery day on the schedule today. <laughs> like, even that might be a little challenging to get the legs going this morning. And some days you wake up, like, hopefully the day before, like, the morning of a race and you're like, I feel amazing. Like, like I feel like mm-hmm. I'm just going to set up a record today. Um, and obviously there's everything in between on yeah. that spectrum. But if we just, we just simplify it and say, all right, my heart variability can be kind of good or bad. This is simplifying like high or low. Because actually with heart variability too high might be a sign that you're getting like overreaching and the parasympathetic system's really kicking in to try to help with the recovery. Um, so the best way, like honestly, heart variability is really about your individual like running mean and your variation around that mean on a given day. Right? Okay. So like if your mean is say, 65 and then you know all of a sudden you're at 75 like that's high synthetic drive you're possibly overreaching or you had a really poor reading um, but you know and on the flip side right if you're you wake up one morning you're at 55 that's a really high synthetic drive and you're like under a tremendous load or you're like really stressed or you slept really crappy last night or like i mean even something simple right like if somebody dropped something like really heavy on the floor and it made a loud sound right before you woke up, you'd probably test and have lower heart rate variability, right? Because mm-hmm. that's stressful. That's like a shock to the system. I guess a question I have is um, why why should I not train? Why shouldn't I just suck it up when I was woken up by my roommate slamming the, you know, the door? The door. Or so, something? so I think that's fair, but I think that has a, like, there's an easy explanation for that, right? Like, I can understand why I'm stressed right now. Because okay. like, you just slammed the door and that woke me up. But well, heart rate variability show the summative stress though. Like it say it's like really low. And you can say, Well, I got woken up by my roommate, um, I was really stressed last night, like, um, will it be t- you know, twice as much or you know, will you be able to see both? So I think that depends on how long you recorded it for. Right? Like do you have three samples of it, then probably you won't probably have a good uh, distribution. If you have two months worth of data or six months or years of data, then you're going to get a pretty good representation of like, oh, wow, this is right. Cause your, your baseline trend will be well-established and it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is a big outlier. Right? There's clearly mm-hmm. a lot of stress. And I think again, you know, you've, you've learned I'm big on reflection on data right? it's like, yeah. okay, I can now reflect on this and say like, yes, I did have I had a really busy day at work. I didn't sleep very well last night. I just, whatever, woke up because I heard a fire truck go by, and, you know, and now here my heart availability is super, super low. This makes sense, right? And then you can make an informed decision about what you got to do about it. Like, should I, you know, whatever. And I had a huge interval session. Like, I, should probably, I should definitely have rest day today or not. So 
here's okay, so here's how I use it, right? Use these two axes, right? Target variability is either like good, it's near your normal range, or it's poor, it's like way above or way below your normal range. And then your subjective feeling, you know, your soreness and, and I won't say RPE necessarily, but like you know what I mean, the, the sensation of how you how you how do you feel um, in the morning? I think you could throw a mood in there too, right? Like, are you are you stoked to get out of bed this morning? Like, are you amped up about that? Or are you like, oh, I just went off. Like, oh, is it really time for me to get up already? You know, that, that factors in. So you make some judgment of that. And so what I've learned is that based on the heart rate ability, my experience, you know, some days I, I wake up and subjectively kind of like, uh, not feeling awesome. But then I look at my heart rate variability. It's good. I got in train and... So I've surprised myself a number of occasions, like, wow, I had a really good training ride today. Like, I didn't feel awesome when I woke up, subjectively, but I went out there, I trained, heart variability was good, and I, like, I, I put in some good work, and I, I felt good about that. I felt good on the bike. Um, obviously, I think it's pretty easy to say, like, hey, I wake up, I feel like a million bucks, I check my heart variability, and lo and behold, it's good. Let's go, let's go hammer, right? That's the perfect world. That's awesome. That works. Um, so, th- so here's where, for me, it was, like, the wake-up call, like, okay, heart variability does give me some insight. Um, it's where I had, I woke up, and I felt pretty good. I'm like, hey, I feel all right. I looked at my heart variability. This was, like, early-ish on in my using of heart variability, and it was low. I was like, uh, that must be an errant reading. I looked at the reading. That reading was good. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know about this heart variability stuff. I feel I feel good. I'm going to go out and train really hard today, but I feel, I feel great. And I went out and I trained and I was sick within 36 hours. Whoa. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Like, did that, was that one off or did that predict that I was get like, like, so like, you know, below the surface, all those processes were working clearly that the virus had already, you know, entered the body and was happening. And I just, it just hadn't surfaced for me yet. Right. It was asymptomatic at that time. Like, okay, that's okay, that was something that right, but one off. I've, I've done it more than once, right? Where I've had that happen where I like said, I feel okay, but the heart rate really isn't good. Uh, I'm just gonna go for this ride anyhow. Yeah, I've I've done it at least three times now. I I believe it. Like, I think that's more it's past the level of fluke for me where if I wake up and the heart rate variability is low, even if I feel good, definitely it's active recovery day, an easy day for me. Yeah. So uh, after you did it the I guess my question is, now if you woke up and you felt felt good, mm-hmm. but you had low heart rate variability, do, do you feel that actually working out hard made the illness worse? So knowing this in advance, can that help mitigate the total time out? I, so I would say yes in theory, but I haven't, I haven't had a good time to test, a good way to test that. Now, okay. there's, a, there's probably a really mean way to test that, right? If you, Just you, you, make people sick. Yeah, well, no, like, they do studies like this, right? Yeah. Like, where they, like, you know, get the common cold virus on a swab and stick it up your nose, and, you know, like, you also have to pay people thousands of dollars to do this sort of study. Okay, I'm in then, if it's thousands uh, of dollars. And, yeah, you could do this and not build train or not train and work out. But, okay. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know if So, uh, you don't necessarily have a study of this, but, like, theoretically, your even, recovery should be easier. Right, so, you know, we're talking about this, like, bucket of all things stress. 
illness is a, another thing that you know scoops something out of that bucket. If okay. I'd been trained really hard that day before, I, well, I was asymptomatic but still starting to fight a, vi a virus, I took something out of the bucket, right? So there's less than you know when you're sick, you really want those reserves available to fight the virus, not to be trying to recover from your exercise. And the other piece of it is that part of recovery, when we talk about recovery from exercise, is immune function. Like that's the immune system helping you recover. If you have any tissue breakdown, it's oh, it helps the, with inflammation. Is that yeah? Right? And, and inflammatory process is part of the immune system's role. Okay. And like, if you have tissue breakdown, you want to clean out tissue that's been damaged. That's the immune system that's coming in there. So you can fairly easily draw a connection. I say, okay, if the immune system has to fight a virus and it has to, you know, clean up after my hard training session. Well, there's only so many resources to go around, so good reasons that my cold might not go so well if I divert those resources to trying to help me recover, or my recovery from my training session might not be so great if those resources are yeah. distributed. So that seems like a really valuable... I guess one thing that I have issue with is I have a coach. Mm -hmm. I get weekly training, mm -hmm. basically. Um, I guess I, I do have the capacity to text her and say, like, got a bad number on my, you know, heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that a lot of coaches would be receptive to an athlete using heart rate var variability with them? I, I think if you trust in the process, I think it's one of those things, right? I think, right? You as an athlete have to trust in the process of your training. And I think on the, the flip side of that, right? So like I said, the, the coach is building a training program based on the periodization, based on what your goals are. But that doesn't necessarily take into account like when you have finals or if you didn't sleep well last night or like all these other things that are in, in life that can obviously impact your training one way or another, right? If you don't, if you want to sleep for three hours before a really hard training ride, how, how good is the quality of that ride going to be? Yeah. Like probably not very good. You're not going to hit your numbers. So was it really worth doing that training ride or... What if you do that right a day later, right? Okay. So I guess for me, I'm a, a fan of having a more fluid training program to take account like what's what's happening in my life overall, knowing, knowing what the goal is, right? Knowing that I, I want to stick to this training program, but life happens, so let's like adjust to that. Let's be able be able to adjust to that and not do something ridiculous and end up sick, right? Because sick certainly doesn't help you with your training. Yeah, absolutely. So that's really interesting. I think. Uh, do you have suggestions on uh, what, how to monitor this? How expensive is it? What's the industry standard? Um, you know, who are you sponsored by? Why did you do this? Uh, you know, in in the world of measurement, it's quite easy. There are a number of free and a number of inexpensive paid apps out there. Uh, so long as you have a Bluetooth heart rate monitor, it can do it. Um, the Apple Watch claims to do it. I, I do, like, I've compared that versus my heart monitor. I get slightly different numbers. And so for me, I've been using the heart monitor for so long, I just trust that number. And I always I always measure it first thing in the morning when I wake up. I think that's okay. it's just like we talked about with weight. You want to measure it at the same time every day. Because even, like, time of day will change it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, if I wait a little bit, right, like, if I sleep in or if I... Like, don't do it right away, I'll definitely see a different number. It's like, mm, I don't know if that's necessarily reflective of the actual. Like, I've, I've done it enough where I recognize the time of day changes the 
Yeah, and so a lot of Bluetooth Hari monitor, or a lot of Hari monitors and are just AMP plus, not mm -hmm. Bluetooth. So you'd have to make sure that yours is. I don't think mine is. I use a, I use a Wahoo. It does it does both. Okay. I'm not sponsored by Wahoo, however. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, like that's super easy to do. The and how out there. long is the test? Um, I do it for two minutes. You okay. Can do that. You Wait, can, so you you, you like wake up, you sit up, you put your heart rate monitor on. Yep. Wait, you sit up though, right? Is no, that, does that no, affect I do. You could so you want to find a position too, right? So whatever you want to do, sitting, standing, lying. I just okay. don't I just like grab it. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and you, then you, you sit there enough. for two minutes. Yep. Um, hold in all the all the pee that you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, once once you train yourself to do it, that okay. for two minutes on eight hours isn't very long. And then, um, so you, get your, you and it automatically it just it calculates it. Yeah. Okay. And does it include so the standard deviation? No, the root. Root mean squared. Root mean squared of successive differences. Mm -hmm. It's a little different than the standard deviation. Um, yes. But sort of gives us the same idea. Yes. Um, and then uh, I guess my last question is then do you take all these data points and you put those on a normal curve? Um, so I look at my, so no, I don't look at the individual data points. I look at the one value. Right. Yeah, I mean day to day. Do you uh, take the day to day and put those on a normal? Yeah, curve? but I more look at it on a sort of a weekly basis. Like I can look like I, I know my number and the app the apps do this, right? Like they'll tell you like, okay, here's your average long term, here's your short term average. It's sort of like chronic versus acute um, training load. Yeah, like your five day average versus your one yeah. year average. Yep. Yeah. So I you know, I look at it on the short term, like how much does it change and what does it look like versus my long term average and which way, like what's, you know, what's the trend, what's that my calling? And yeah. you definitely see, like, if you're putting together a hard train block, or like you talked about through stage races, putting together days of successively increasing um, TSS scores. Yep. They, yeah, you, you see it trickle down a little bit over that. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So, no, I think it's it's just a different way to look at it. It's a different insight. And I think it's, it's helpful to maybe expose some of the things that you may not have an understanding of as far as like what's impacting your train, what's impacting your your ability to ride. Yeah. So then, I well, the reason I asked uh, about the normal curve is I was wondering if you could quantify like, oh, this was one and a half standard deviations low, and that's sort of my threshold to really start to be worried. Or um, oh shoot, it's like it doesn't move well. You know, that's a great question. I haven't I haven't looked at it in that. Yeah, I, well, you sort of do it in this more like fluid. Um, yeah. Oh, that seems a little off way. Yeah. Where I wonder if you could be more objective about it. Yeah, and say, oh, here's my, th you know, these three times I got sick. You know, yep. each time it was 1.7 standard deviations low. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think you could probably do that. You could just certainly find the outliers. I think the other piece that I haven't done yet, just because I haven't taken the time or had the energy to do it is to take and plot my heart rate variability against my TSS over yeah. time and see if they co-vary. I, I would imagine they do to a certain extent um, mm. and just see like see if there's any trends there, see if there's anything I can identify that happens over the course of training or over a year. That, yeah, um, and maybe get like a, a five-day average of your TSS and your mm -hmm. uh, heart rate variability and see how they 
um, you know, either whether they inversely yeah. uh, move or something like that. Yeah, and yeah, hopefully maybe gain some insights off of that as well, right? So I think you could. I think there's some some interesting thought, at least in my mind, and you know, I don't know how true this is, but about building a training program that not just looks at TSS but also looks at heart rate variability and trying to like, you know, you have a theory of how much TSS you should build in, but can you could you maybe build in more and just look at the heart rate variability response and see mm-hmm. like right. Figure out, like you said, I was at one point seven standards. Like, what's the what's the limit I can push to, and then use that heart variability and like push that limit so you get to that like healthy overreaching before yeah. you back off your training load and allow for recovery. Yeah, and that's definitely the important thing is allowing for recovery. But it's interesting to say, uh, okay, wake up tomorrow morning, give me your heart rate variability, and you know they give it to you. It's it's one standard deviation low. And you're like perfect um, because mm-hmm. that, that means that you know you're de- we're definitely right on the edge of too much stress, but yeah. um, it, it was manageable. And then if they give it to you at 1.5 below, then you can sort of be a little more nervous about you know I mean these are made up yeah, values, yeah. these ones in 1.5, but that I wonder I feel like these companies that do heart rate variability should be releasing their own studies on these. Um, yeah, these yeah. thoughts or is it sort of um i know uh what's the uh the electrical uh, muscle um, oh, like uh neuromuscular tens? yeah well, uh, so tens is the pain relief one uh, yeah nmes neuromuscular electrical stimulation is like the strengthening or... yeah so the um i have one of those and it's really hard to find information on it mm-hmm. uh, they sort of the company sort of says ah go figure it out on your own um, whereas, and it seems like heart rate variability is very similar. And so it's, it's good that you outlined where people should start. I think the biggest thing is it sounds like just get data, try to do it every morning. Yeah. I mean, you, right. You want to establish your norm and then work from there. And there's, there's a big body of research out there around heart rate variability, um, for a variety of health conditions. Like even I've seen things as interesting as like, using it to start to detect if you have any food sensitivities, right? So you can imagine in a world where you sort of have an allergic reaction, even at a small level, that would be a stressor, and yeah. that would be picked up in the autonomic discharge, not in that nervous system going. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the research is out there. You have to probably dig around. I don't know if there's like anything specific around like the training parameters and like how do I modulate my training or how... I think, I think the question that would be most interesting for me and probably for a lot of people trained to answer is like, what's the you know the delta from my normal that dictates i have like the maximally successful training load from my train session yesterday or this past week yeah right? like that would be right because i think that would be tremendously valuable to know did i max out my training or did i leave a little on the table and then building that feedback loop that way yeah but how do you really i i guess my issue with that is how do you know you need um Right. If you, if you want to test the quality of one thing, you need to compare it against something sure. that you know is true. So do we have any way to know that we eked out every little bit, but didn't go too far, but just eked out just the right amount? I mean, I guess that's where you talk about the, you know, power loss or, you know, um, decline towards the end of the last interval and say like, okay, well, you know, for a threshold interval, I had whatever, like a 3% or 4% loss in power, and therefore I, mm-hmm. I'm at the, like, 
that's theoretically the last interval I should be doing. Um, yeah. I mean, you can look at that, but I think it's so the theoretically the difference that heart variability would give you is it would maybe account the other stress factors, mm -hmm. account for those as well, right? And say like, okay, well, given that you had a crappy week at work, yeah, you, you know, you achieved yeah. maximal training benefit that you could this week. That's interesting. I also wonder if uh, you could take like a a really high level coach who coaches professional cyclists and um, just get data from their riders and then tr maybe try and simulate their heart rate variability responses mm -hmm. um, within your own athletes. Yeah. As a way of like, look, I know how to make these pro cyclists really fast. And, you know, this is the heart rate variability they have each day after each workout, yeah. after each recovery day. And um, even just trying to match that could get you like pretty close, 90, 95% of the way sure. there. Uh, I wonder if that could also be valuable. But I don't know. I don't think these pro coaches, uh, they also have a lot of hush-hush training. Yeah, as I, say, I don't, I don't think they're going to be uh, terribly forthcoming with this data. They're not going to say, hey, great, you want to use some data analysis? Yeah. Look, <laughs> let me just hand over all these uh, whatever GPX files or right, whatever they are. So... Uh, you have anything else, or for now, no. I think that's a good, like, high-level, like, practical application of heart rate variability uh, okay. without going too far off into the weeds. Um, I think if it's something that's of interest, we maybe touch on it some other some other episode. I feel like we're due at some point to have a an episode that's like a, a rehash or like a, a review of okay. prior things. So maybe if we want to dive a little deeper, we can do something of that nature but for now get your heart rate variability start recording it you need yeah. a lot of data points to even get started so. yeah and then try to make some uh some observations with it and i think that's the biggest thing right like it took me getting sick more than once for me to actually really buy in and trust it okay so hope i mean hopefully you don't have to make the mistakes i made right but like oh yeah it's you know well it's should... reliable but Maybe you maybe should make the same mistake. Should Just we, yeah, Todd, should we trust you? That's really the question. That, that's a great question. <laughs> so uh, my topic is, uh, we called it the thousand the thousand yard stare. Uh, but basically, I I guess this generic story of a cyclist uh, maybe will help help you understand. Um, okay, it's a, it's a Friday night. You know, you're either like out with your wife, you had like a couple drinks, or maybe with your friends. Um you know, oh, that was a hard work week, like, let's hang out and relax. You go to bed a little late, and you get up for your 7.30 group ride. Or if you live in the city, it's even earlier for some reason. Um, all of these group rides are way too early for me, but you, you know, you didn't get great sleep, you had a couple drinks the night before, you do your group ride, it's a hammer fest. All the cool kids show up, you know, everybody wants to fight up every climb. You do, what, four hours, you get home by noon, you, you know, you put your legs up after 75 miles and you turn on the TV and you're not even looking at the TV. You're just looking through it. And that's the thousand yard stare of, of just that blank expression on your face. Um, and I think that even, you know, even some pros have this when they're, I remember the uh, Olympic time trial, you had to sit in the, like the winner's chair when you had mm -hmm. the best time and they're sitting there and they're just like staring at nothing you know it's like uh like are you looking at the moon or something <laughs> and uh, i think that hopefully all of you have 
had this experience once because it's it's really kind of humbling. And uh, you know, someone comes up to you, <laughs> someone comes up to you, and it's like, hey, like, do you want to get dinner? And you're like, whoa, what? <laughs> like, um, they'll ask you such a simple question, like, hey, do you know where the uh, you know whatever is? And and you're like, what? Um, so what is this? Why do we have it? How do we stop having it? Uh, one big thing for me is I hate this because I can't I can't do my homework because mm-hmm. uh, you have to use your brain and uh, I, it's hard to write algorithms when you uh, you know you're all foggy. So some some call it like brain fog, uh, thousand yard stare. Um, there's I don't really have a solution, although I have some theories that I lean on more than others. Um, but it could be any number of things. So we can just briefly talk about what the different things are. And I think this will eventually sort of, um, devolve into just good recovery habits. Um, hopefully that's where we end up. Yes. So I think, um, I don't know, cause I have some wacky theories, uh, okay. because when you're desperate for a solution, right, you start to go off the deep end. Yeah. So, uh, some simple ones, I think this is probably the leading uh, theory, in my opinion, is just simply dehydration. Okay. So um, USA Cycling says we want seven ounces every 15 minutes for the whole workout. So that's a bottle and a half or a bottle and a, and a third um, per hour. And, um, you know, you have people like Scratch and Osmo. All those guys are saying you can't just drink water. You have to be using our powder, which are they right? Or do they want to sell their powder? Um, but how many people drink one and a half bottles per hour on a group ride? Um, I struggle to get four bottles in four hours. I've gotten a lot better with that. But also, where are these water stops? Like, you don't just do circles around the water fountain, you know, and then once per hour, fill up your bottles again. Um, but I think that there's a lot to be said. I think that most people are dehydrated during their ride and become dehydrated afterwards, um, regardless of their hydration status beforehand. And I know um, some books like Endure and some uh, white papers say it's okay to lose, a lot of people say don't lose more than what, 2%, 4%? I I think right now the elite marathoners shoot for 2 to 3% at the end of the race. So you should expect that when you weigh yourself before, you weigh yourself after, the difference should be 2 to 3% of your body weight at the most. Right, and that's beyond that, it's performance decrement. But then I've also heard, you know, from sports drink companies, you know, oh well, any any loss in body water and body weight is decrement. Uh, I think I'm leaning towards it's probably not any. It's probably is a percentage, and probably okay. a small percent might well, be. Well, okay. didn't Endure say some of the excuse me, some of the marathon runners were losing like eight percent or something? Um, yeah, there's certainly without they didn't have any performance. performance. Yeah. so there's certainly some evidence out there that shows that you can lose a non-trivial amount of water and still perform pretty well. And then the other argument is though, how many of you at the end of this ride haven't lost? You know, I think all of us have lost performance um, mm-hmm. ability. So maybe we are at like 5% lower, but also some confounding things are the food you've eaten mm-hmm. can increase your weight back up or, um, so this theory is based on the idea that, you know, dehydration causes a lot of, uh, negative symptoms that could be related with this phenomenon of like, you could have dry eyes, dry mouth, um, a headache, 
Um, generally, you know, just not enough fluid causes all your bodily functions to just not work quite as well. Be busy sometimes. Yeah, lightheadedness. Um, all these things, I mean, it could just be you just don't have enough water in your body. So uh, one way to, another big issue with this is you can't solve it in, you know, you can't just eat a sandwich and solve it, right? Like if, if it were a food problem. Um, you can only absorb 16 to 32 ounces of water an hour. Okay, you can't actually absorb 32 ounces of, of water an hour. No, um, no. You, if you try, you'll, you'll go to the toilet. Yeah, so, um, and you also uh, need some sodium to absorb this water. I read one white paper that said um, you want to do two liters in two hours at like 60 millimoles per milliliter. Um, which equates to, I think, like a quarter teaspoon. That sounds about right. And, and what they said was you could do even more. You would just pee out the salt. Um, so their recommendation was just like really salty water for two hours straight, a liter per hour. Yeah. Your, your kidneys are going to regulate that. Right? Your kidneys do a really good job. They you know, have many, many years of evolution to help you conserve and manage um, fluid concentration and fluid balance. So... Uh, your kidneys are going to, when you start to go off that ride and not aren't drinking, uh, make you pee less, right? And re reabsorb some of the water. Um, and then, you know, if you're not, if you're super hydrated, you're just going to flush it out. Right? You're going to get a whole bunch of water in the system, but not enough uh, salt, right? That's that's a different problem, right? That's uh, hyponatremia, yeah. uh, that's, which is terrible. Uh, but so then your kidneys are going to try to flush all the water out and try to retain your sodium balance. That's right. So our, our kidneys are really robust for hydration needs. And, yeah, and management of those needs. Yeah. So um, probably more so than our thirst mechanism. Like our thirst mechanism is very good, right? Thirst is there to tell us that we should drink something. Yeah. But on the back end, the kidneys, right? If, if you ignore thirst, the kidneys are going to kick in and, and do yeah. their job to help you survive. And I, I think that thirst thing is interesting because uh, the biggest confounding thing with thirst is, um, you know, salt intake, mm -hmm. which it's like, you don't need more water. You just needed to have put less salt on your dinner mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, but you do actually need that. You know, the reason the thirst mechanism is going is so that you can get more free water to expel the sodium uh, that you took in. So... I think that this is uh, probably, in my opinion, the biggest factor is dehydration. So, you know, my recommendation here would be make sure you're getting a modest salt uh, water, you know, whether that's, um, you know, the classic rehydration is like saltines and water. Because, uh, well, I, I remember reading one white paper that said that glucose actually had no effect on rehydration status. Um, so I know a lot of these, you know, scratching includes sugar. Okay. Pretty much all the sports drinks have some yeah. glucose or maltodextrin or something of that mm -hmm. nature. So, um, I th think this is an area that I certainly struggle with. I don't really feel like I fully grasp, um, rehydration. I just make sure that I drink enough and then on to my second theory, which is eating enough. Um, so... Yes. The, the two big ways that I really try and solve this issue is drinking enough and eating enough. And um, a lot of times because, it, well, you know, if you're an American or have more of a Western diet, you're going to get enough sodium in your food anyway. So you could just drink regular water. And as long as you had it with, um, you know, like a deli sandwich, right? The deli meat's going to have a lot of sodium in it. Um, even bread has plenty of sodium in it. 
Yeah. Um, so love being Asian. Yeah, and uh, like pasta, you know, your sauce is gonna have salt. Um, but basically, another way that you could have this uh, issue is low blood glucose. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you just did a four-hour ride. How much did you eat? Uh, we talked about this before. You use even on your like most modest endurance rides, you're doing 60 grams of carbs per hour, mm-hmm. and your body says. Uh, says we're tired, we have blood, low blood glucose, even before you use up all your glycogen stores. You may have 400 to 500 grams, but at what, you have 100 grams left, 150 grams left, your body is nervous. Yeah, well, and, you know, to be fair, the whole thing we didn't talk about, right? we, were, we were, when we were talking about last time, like, oh, is this many kilojoules and this many grams of carbohydrate? We're talking about, like, what the legs are putting out. We're talking about the brain. The brain is glucose hungry, right? Like mm. in a resting state, the brain consumes tremendous amounts of glucose. Like, that's what the brain you, the brain, unlike your muscles, doesn't really like to use fat. It doesn't it, it's used glucose and then uh, you've heard about keto diet, it'll make ketone bodies when there's no glucose available, which is a different thing. But yeah, brain brain is a fan of glucose. So uh, hunger I think is a strong or low mm. blood sugar is a strong hypothesis here. That's interesting. So um, and you know, in, in the scenario that I described where you're racing your friends up these climbs, you do a 20 minute climb, that's a hundred grams of carbs gone right there in that one climb. You do three of those, that's all your glycogen stores. And then, um, you, you know, your brain's still working, even the, the ride home, you know, the, the 30 minutes to get back to your place from where you guys met up is 40 grams. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can eat up to 75 to 90 grams of um, carbohydrates per hour. How many of us are doing that? I know on the group rides that that we do uh, in the area. I don't see Not people eating that, at all. No. Yeah. Um, so you could just be completely out of sugar. And your brain is, you know, uh, dude, you know, we need to slow down and... I don't think the brain has a very good job of um, telling us that we need sugar. Um, well, does it not do a good job of telling us, or do we do a bad job of listening? Yeah, that's a good point. And um, there's all these ideas of uh, we eat so much sugar already that we sort of just become numb to this, uh, the sugar sensor almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, um, I forget where I was going to go with the, uh, the glucose, but... Um, this could be another area. I don't know, and, and it's tough to know. Like, uh, is does the hydration affect the glucose uptake or circulation, or? Hmm, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I, I would just imagine that everything gets bogged down a little bit if you don't have enough water in the system. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the other thing that happens when you don't have enough fluid volume is for a given effort, right, your heart rate goes up, right, because you have to pump blood into the system and. Mm-hmm. If, if you know your legs need a fixed amount of blood to produce 300 watts, so if you can't don't have enough food in the system, you still have to get the blood out there. So the heart yeah. has to do more. I thought more it was work. because um, the blood became thicker, and yeah. so you need you need uh, like it doesn't go heart, as far each. It also doesn't fill. So right, the heart's elastic, and so if there's fluid to fill the chamber, it gets a stretch and then it recoils. It contracts, but also it can stretch and recoil on that. So if that if that chamber isn't as full, because there's less fluid volume, then it's harder to pump out. Yeah, yes, it is yeah. also more viscous. 
thing. That's, and you have to be getting pretty dehydrated before the yeah. viscosity of your blood right? not turned into to oil or anything. <laughs> and uh, okay, so how do you resolve um, low glucose levels? So this this is now um, getting into our recovery stuff. I personally eat real food, but I know a lot of people who have success with um, carbohydrate and protein shakes. Um, although I think one big thing that you have to worry about, I used to do, here's a trick that a lot of people had success with. I stopped doing it, but it's, um, 75 grams of Gatorade, 75 grams of carbohydrates worth of Gatorade. One scoop of whey gives you your three to one Mm -hmm. ratio and you put it in like a liter of water and you sip that for 30 minutes and the Gatorade has sodium in it. It has the carbohydrates and some protein, right? Because you want that that three to one, four to one ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a liter of water, um, and it, it usually tastes delicious as well because it's just salty sugar. And and then uh, right. so right, I mean I think that the fact that that tastes so good, I think that's like your brain telling you that you need sugar. <laughs> okay. So like this tastes amazing. You you've had that response like you eat something that's like not really that amazing. Like you, you know consciously it's not that amazing, but you're tired and hungry. Like this is so good. Oh yeah, like um, what your your gas station um little uh, muffin things. Yeah. What are those? Uh, um, like a Twinkie or like a pink snowball yeah, yeah. or something. Those things are terrible. And you know <laughs> that, you know they don't taste good. And if you were like had just had a good, like a, a good fulfilling dinner and you were not hungry, you'd be like. Uh-uh. I'm not like I'm not you know that's not appetizing at all. Yeah. But your like your gas tanks empty. You're like, oh my gosh, that was so good. Like, yeah, yeah. Like I'll eat three more right now. So, um, yeah, recovery that that's 400 calories uh, of protein and sugar mm-hmm. and water, which that's pretty good for recovery. I tend to eat real food. And partially because I want to eat more, I tend mm-hmm. to eat, especially in these big long rides, I'll eat like a thousand calories on, I, I forget where I read that. If um, I think it was the um, the Feed Zone cookbook. Mm-hmm. The uh, author said, try and eat, I forget why, but I, I know that four hour ride should be like a thousand calories uh, off the back of that. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of good success with like a lot of food and real food. And I think that one big thing with that is um, the real food is digested reasonably by your system. Mm-hmm. And this this Gatorade powder uh, shake, which, yeah, makes you feel good in the moment, the sugar goes right through you. And you're, back, right, you're right back where you started within an hour. And that's because you've... You just burnt through it, whereas the this other meal you would just get this slow release of carbohydrates. Yeah, I think part of that also has to do with you just put a whole bunch of sugar in, and provided you're not diabetic, you just got a huge insulin spike, and so your body said, "Well, hey, let me let me just store all this right away, right?" Okay. And so it it's not in circulation anymore; it's stored because hmm. there's a whole bunch of sugar here. So what I'm supposed to store that? Um, and I just put myself under a bunch of stress, which says, like, hey, I need to prepare for the long game. Right? It's like, how am I going to eat again? So uh, this, yeah. is like, this is where our evolution comes in, right? We, we're not evolved for four-hour training rides. We're evolved for, like, slowly hunting a woolly mammoth or something. Um, yeah, so, right, so we have this huge insulin response to that sort of a meal. And I think that's where 
right? You want the protein or you want and really the real food because it has not just carb like simple carbohydrates, but complex carbohydrates and fiber and protein and some fats. And we know all those things slow down the digesting. So when it gets into the intestine to be absorbed, it's not like all in one shot. It's sort of this trickle drip. So now you can actually absorb at a reasonable rate. And then instead of a huge spike in insulin that says, hey, like store all this stuff, you can actually get a trickle drip into your bloodstream and like have normal blood glucose levels again. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I guess I never realized that maybe it's because you you eat the sugar and it just goes right into storage and then it's no longer in your blood anymore. So you don't, it's not helping your brain anymore or, yeah. you know, your muscles or whatever. Um, yeah, so... I'm not terribly big on the shakes. The, the only reason I think that I'd have them is um, in a stage race, maybe if you, you know you're in the middle of nowhere and you just need to make sure that you get calories down. I think that the most important thing is is just total calorie consumption for stage races. Um, although I guess at this point I'd probably recommend maybe some almonds or another fat like that to pair with it because yeah, that'll slow, fiber, slow it down. Yeah. That'll slow it down uh, a little bit. So we have, um, and, and then the other thing is it's like the recommendation is generally eat a meal every two hours up to the length of the effort. Mm -hmm. So if you do a four hour ride, you do your recovery shake, you do it a meal two hours later, you do another meal two hours later. And, um, I was working with a dietitian for a bit and she said, if you start to feel crappy, just push up that first meal to as soon as you start to feel crappy. And uh, one big thing with that is actually having food ready at that point. So you don't start making your meal when you feel crappy because then you're sitting there waiting for the water to boil for your pasta. And you're just like, uh-oh, you know, like uh, falling over as, as you lean on the counter in the kitchen. Or you grab something that's readily available, right, which may or may not be... Right, and then how you have your, you know, your kitchen set up and what you buy when you go shopping. Uh, right, so that's another thing is, um, I would like eat. I I used to eat like race food, as like recovery stuff because you're like I don't have any moderately healthy snacks. I only have race food and, um, you know, my dinner food. So I'm not gonna wait for my dinner food, and then you end up eating like a gel, right. you know, an hour and a half after your ride. Which, um, yeah, that's not really going to help you get to your end goal. No, yeah, I, mean, I think that's where, like, sure, you can wait for your meal, but hopefully that means you have some, like, fresh fruits or vegetables around that you can, like, snack on and give you a, a little something until that water's boiled and the pasta's ready for you. Yeah. So um, now we're starting to go a little more into the wacky uh, theory stuff. So another one, this isn't that wacky, but allergies could be okay. another issue. Um, I know right now in California, uh, you can just bike past a giant field of wildflowers and they're all blooming mm -hmm. and they're all ready to send their pollen right into your nose. And, um, I think that this, this thousand foot, uh, stair is also very, it's very eye based. It's very nose, very sinus based. And so, for all you know, you just sucked in uh, this thing that your body thinks is trying to kill you for four hours, and now you're just sitting down, and your nose is inflamed. And I, I'm under the impression that when you're riding, your body does a much better job of circulating these things, and it sort of 
holds off on the inflammation because it's like we have some other stuff to worry about you know this this person's exerting themselves and then when you finally get to rest your body it says oh let's go back to this inflammatory chemical that's messing with our sinuses so um yeah it's the it's like we, you knew we were going to talk about uh, heart rate variability today and some of the comparison with the nervous systems, right? Yeah, it worked out some, pretty well. some interplay there. Yeah, so, yeah, I wonder, we didn't talk about allergies specifically, but those probably um, send you more to the sympathetic side, for sure. Um, so, depending on who you are, do you take allergy medicine every day? How well does it work? Um, do you not take allergy medicine every day because you think you don't have allergies, but in reality, you're just getting... Um, hit with consistent low dose inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a personal struggle for each person. I uh, tend to take just a little bit of allergy medicine unless it's really bad, um, just because I don't like a lot of the side effects. Balancing, um, I, you know, it just depends on what your response is. But I, I do believe that most people have allergic responses despite people claiming they don't have allergies. Um, so this might be an area you might want to investigate if, if you're having trouble. For, for what it's worth, allergies are fascinating science. Fascinating immune system science, but okay. it's a whole other like... Well, then it sounds like you have another topic, huh? Uh, yeah, that's no, just a fascinating thing that happens there. Okay, so that's wacky one. Wacky two is I've been thinking a, a little bit about um, eye strain mm -hmm. as part of cycling. Eye strain has very similar symptoms to allergy stuff. Um, basically what eye strain is, is the muscles that control the zoom on your eyes. So if you look at something that's right in front of you, like maybe your keyboard, and then you look at something across the room because someone walked in to ask you a question, you have these small muscles behind your eyes that flex to allow you to focus on each of those things. And one of the big things with computers is if the screen's too close, you have to flex really hard to keep the text in focus. Um, and actually, we have two we have two different main areas of focus. We have close focus, and then we have distance focus. This is why you have like driving glasses versus computer glasses. And obviously, cycling, we're always scanning because uh, everybody on the road is trying to kill us. Um, okay, it's not that dramatic, but um, there's there are, there are many hazards. Yeah. There's, there's cars, there's squirrels, there's potholes, there's slick pavement. Um, there's all this stuff that you have to constantly scan and make sure you're not putting yourself in a dangerous situation. So the scanning effect uses these muscles in your eyes. You're constantly zooming in and out to look at the different areas. So I'm, I'm wondering if four hours later, are your eye muscles just fried? You've done so much scanning. And finally you come home and they get to rest. Mm -hmm. and they just want to relax as much as possible. And I believe when you look further into the distance, your eye muscles are more relaxed. It's You're actually flexing them when you look at something up close. So maybe that desire to look really far away is actually just a desire for your eye muscles to relax as much as possible. Fair. I, li I like that hypothesis. But then, like, what of the Olympic time trial? That wasn't really long of that. So I think I, I think it... It works for a long event, like a long ride. Okay. But you, I mean, I guess the one argument is like for a time trial, it's so short, it's so intense, you're just supremely focused and like right, every millimeter counts in that type of yeah. event. So therefore, like it was even more strained because everything like it was like your eye muscles at their maximum, right? Like they're one RM for 30 Yeah, or I guess um, 
It depends, right? Uh, I grew up, um, you know, in New Jersey. Southern New Jersey is just flat mm-hmm. as a pancake, mm-hmm. and they would do a lot of time trials there. And you would get these masochists who just like biking in a straight line for 20 minutes at a time. And they would also, you know, have the thousand foot stare sometimes. And they didn't need to do any scanning. They could mm-hmm. just stare down at the computer yeah. the whole time. So, um, yeah, I think that maybe it's more than one of these things. Sure, combination, as, yeah. as are many things in life, right? Right. So then um, the last one, which is now back to maybe this one's not as wacky, but uh, sleep. Mm-hmm. is another one in a lot all of our races that are at 8 a.m in the middle of nowhere that you have to get up at 5 a.m for that you're not used to um also just getting up early and then it being seven o'clock that evening you've now been awake for 12 hours as opposed to a normal day you may be awake for eight hours or something um just like stuff like that is, is another way to increase fatigue um if you're not used to I mean, sleep deprivation, there's a lot of studies on that, and um, it'll really mess you up. And in addition to low glucose, low hydration, um, it can really... Sometimes I even worry it can be dangerous, like, driving home. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Like, you woke up really early for your event, and then you're driving home in the middle of the day, and you're just really sleepy, so... It's not like we have a, a talk on the science of sleep coming up, too. Yeah, sleep, I'd be interested in that. Sleep is a fascinating, fascinating thing, especially like that middle of the day. Cause you do, there is a, a dip in alertness that just is natural and sort of mm. curves. So like, yeah, it's probably not a mid time to be driving home. Yeah, and that's that's gassed. that's right at the time when you're putting your legs up after your group ride. Mm-hmm. Um, is that time when you have that natural lull as well? So, um, and of course, everyone wants to fit in so much stuff into their weekend. So. You have to go out with your friends on Friday night, and then you have to get up for your group ride, and then, um, you know, because we're working the rest of the week, so. Yeah, yeah they, you, know, you have to be, well, at least in college, I was like, I got to do the group ride, and I got to be back before the brunch closes at the dining hall. Yeah. Because I got to eat, because otherwise I'm not really, I'm really hosed. Yeah, you don't get to eat till like, five minutes. Yeah, like, how do, how do I fit all <laughs> these things in? Mm-hmm. So, uh, those are just areas to explore, I think. Um, this is also just maybe uh, an insight into maybe how you can solve some of your own problems on the bike. Some people, cycling comes intuitively to them. Some people, every group ride, man, I, I just can't seem to, you know, insert thing here. I, can, I can't seem to get right on this guy's wheel. I can't seem to do well on these climbs. Um, hopefully maybe this gives you an idea of the brainstorming requirements to resolve your issue. I think that for me, this thousand thousand yard stare is not really very helpful and very um, convenient in terms of you know being able to do other stuff other than training. So I'm exploring these possibilities. It's maybe more than one of them, and how do we maximize the different areas? Yeah, I think at the at the end of the day, right, with like, both these topics today and, and a lot of things that we've talked about so far. It's a lot about like, just being introspective, right? Like asking yourself the question, like, well, what is my limiter? What, where am I having trouble here? And taking some observations and, you know, of course, my bias, right? Looking, looking at some data that you have to tell you one way or another. And I think a lot of times we can solve the problems or we can find somebody like a coach or a, a good training partner or somebody who's got more experience than ourselves and 
have a chat with them. And, and hopefully, hopefully we can do that for you all that are listening. Uh, they just give you, give you some insights or maybe help you ask better questions of yourself to help you through those things that are, that are challenging you with your training or your riding. Yeah. I mean, the cycling is such a sport of, of little details. Um, it seems so simple. Just cross the line first. It's so easy. Just cross the line first. What's so mm-hmm. hard about this? Um, other than the 49 others who want to, you know, cross it too. But, um, you know, a great example of this is, I don't think I shared this, but one of my teammates, um, was sprinting on the hoods and he lost by a tire width, um, in a 60 mile race. So he, he just raced for two hours and 45 minutes and, and got second by a tire width. You know, that's, um, one of the worst feelings, but, uh, he was also in his hoods and, um, you know, he, he told me he wasn't really thinking about his, his sprint. He was more focused on staying away from the field. Um, and, and these two little changes, he could have changed one of them, focusing more on the sprint, getting into the drops, um, ditching his water bottle maybe even, uh, going into the finish. A- any of these little tiny things maybe could have given him the tire width he needed to stay on the top. So. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Like even like at that level, right? Uh, I, if I recall, I think you told me this after the last time we had a show or uh, some other time, but that was a Cat 4 rider that was, mm-hmm. you know. But even at the highest level, right, they have these super small. Uh, look at uh, Milan San Remo, right? Look at, that, look at that finish. And those guys raced for, you know, 6 hours and 40 minutes. Then mm-hmm. to have, well, it's like a dozen guys came to, to the line together. Yeah. And they were separated by the smallest of margins, right? over that kind of distance. And that, that to me is amazing, right? There's mm-hmm. not less attrition. Yeah, for and even um, on the climb that they all got away on, for them all to, for 12 people to have fitness levels quite at that like exact range, none mm-hmm. of them were strong enough to get rid of the others. Yeah. None, you know, none of those 12 were weak enough to get dropped. So yeah. um, for all 12 of them to be right in that range. Um, yeah. So, you know, and then now my favorite part is, um, why and for some it's just raw their engines better for yeah. some maybe their wheels are a bit better yeah uh, for some you know maybe their upper body's a little bit smaller so they have less air to push it's smarter right it's more more yeah. clever and to a point of course right now what you're talking about about your experience in santa cruz is riding in the right place and, and using your tactics correctly maybe you weren't yeah. quite as strong from the physiologic standpoint but you were clever enough to put yourself in that right position to stay there. But then for your to the point um, idea, I did burn 1,100 calories, you know, even as smart as I could be mm-hmm. uh, in, in one hour. Uh, so, you know, these people who are maybe less smart, you know, no matter what, you have to come with the kilojoules, but can we take 5%, can we take 10% off, mm-hmm. um, and can that be the difference for us as an individual rider? So... 10% is a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, 10, 10% is a big margin. I mean, you, you did something because you put a butter in your bike, maybe at that point. Yeah. So, cool. That's another episode. Yeah, very good. Uh, until next time. Yeah, thanks for listening. And hopefully you get out on a good drive between now and then, or several.